0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, law, But by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration even the renewal by the Holy Spirit. Before we open God's Word together this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're so thankful that You have given us Your Word, that You have given it to us in such a way that it forces us to continually go back to it, to read it again and again, to study it, to plunge its depths, to come to understand it in all of its fullness, a lifetime pursuit. Father, we pray that as we open your word together today, that you would guide and direct our thoughts and that you would, through God the Holy Spirit, uh, help us to understand what you have written, what you have said, and its significance for us today. And so, Father, we trust you to guide and direct us as we study your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today we are continuing our study in Ephesians. Now, we're not in Ephesians this morning because for about the last seven or eight weeks, we have been going through more of a topical study in order to understand how, a partic- how we can apply a particular verse. So we're learning these spiritual skills because the verse that we came to, uh, the verse that we came to was in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, which says, do not be angry, uh, or it says, be angry, but do not sin. And the question is, how am I able to be angry, which is a sin, and not sin? And I pointed out in the interpretation of that verse and its application is that our emotions are often a visceral response to things that happen to us or around us. And I use that word visceral intentionally because if you look at both the Hebrew writers of Scripture and the New Testament writers of Scripture, you discovered that th- they relate, and this was typical of the Hebrews, so that's the background also for the New Testament writers, is that they identify emotions with uh, internal organs, uh, such as the liver, the kidneys, uh, the heart, and so they would use those to talk about certain emotions, because when we, something happens to us, we feel it in our gut that 's how we say it in America, and so that gives us this idea but But for them they 're talking about the emotions, but they associate them with these with these internal internal organs so it 's a visceral it 's almost an automatic response. Somebody cuts us off in traffic we instantly want to flare up uh, somebody. Uh, says something or uh, announces something that is a tragedy, and we instantly feel sad. The emotions in and of themselves at that point are not necessarily sinful. It's what we do with them. That's why Paul says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't act on your anger. Don't uh, let the fact that you have this visceral response cause you to uh, engage in sinful actions. It could be mental attitude sins. It could be sins of the tongue. It could be overt sins. So how do we do that? How do we get into, into or out of situations where uh, the option seems to be to sin? And so I have been taking us through a series of skills, spiritual skills, and we are now on the one related to personal love for God. So let's just review what we've studied uh, recently. Uh, in the last two or three weeks, I focused on living today in light of eternity. And so what we have learned in this is that, first of all, to be reminded that salvation is not by works, but it is for the purpose Of good works. This is stated specifically in Ephesians uh, 2 8 through 10. 8 and 9 describe the fact that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. But then verse 10 says that we are his masterpiece. Usually it's translated workmanship, which is a little bit uh, bland of a term has that idea of bringing a, a master craftsman to something that he has created that is, um, that's a masterpiece. So we are his masterpiece created at the instant of salvation, that regeneration. We are created for good works. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved for those works. And those works are that, (coughs) excuse me, that which is done in order to honor and glorify the Lord. And second, we understand that all Christians will eventually be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ takes place after the future rapture of the church when all believers who are uh, dead in Christ will rise first when he returns in the clouds, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught caught up together with him and thus we will be with Him in the clouds forever. So that is immediately followed by this judgment seat of Christ, which we went through, mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And I didn't correct that slide. It should be 1 Corinthians three uh, ten through 15. So all believers are saved eternity, eternally, but not all receive rewards. The idea when we talk about our personal sense of destiny is that we're living today in light of eternity. We're living today in light of the fact that one day there will be an evaluation and there will be various uh, rewards that are handed out. And these have to do with our future personal responsibilities and privileges when we are in Christ's kingdom and then on into heaven. And that we these works are are um, worked through us on the basis of our walk by the Holy Spirit so it's not human morality human effort human works it is as we walk by means of the Spirit as we apply God's word and in fellowship with him that the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of the spirit and these are the things that are are the basis for being rewarded. We looked at 2 Corinthians 9, 24-27, that all run the race, which is a metaphor for living the Christian life, not for getting saved. And Paul states that some at the end are disqualified from receiving the rewards, but they're not disqualified from eternal life. And so there are some believers, as Paul described it in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 15 that some are saved but they have no rewards they are saved yet is through fire but they are still saved and they spend eternity with the lord in heaven so three things that we should remember from that is that good works are not inevitable after being saved we must decide to grow in the grace and knowledge of our lord jesus christ or not regeneration does not minimize our sin nature It only gives us a new identity and new relationship to God where we are no longer under the tyranny of the sin nature. So thus we need to use these skills so that we stay in fellowship and so that we continue to grow and mature. So what we're going to look at in this lesson is how we are to love the Lord our God because this is uh This is crucial so we look at the basic skills for life and i'll review those here in this chart in spiritual childhood we learn some basic skills just think about when you were a child what was the first thing you had you you learned well you it wasn't a good lesson you learned that if you cried Loudly enough, people would automatically do what you wanted them to do, and you would get love and care and tender things like that, and then eventually your parents would have to uh, teach you not to be so self-absorbed. But we learned that we do some things that we shouldn't, and so we would get uh, a pat on the butt or some other reminder that, that's negative that we should not do that. So that happens when we sin, And so what we are supposed to do as believers when we sin and we will sin, there's no guarantee that believers will not sin and they will not sin egregiously. Some people always see some celebrity and they really do a high dive and land in the pool of carnality with a big splash and everybody goes, how can they be a Christian? Because God didn't make you perfect when you became a Christian. He doesn't do away with the sin nature. We're just as capable of committing all the sins after we're saved that we could have committed before we were saved. But God, in His grace, sent His Son to die on the cross for us so that He paid the eternal sin penalty for us on our behalf. That's grace. And then God, in His Word, teaches us how we are to live so that we... On our better days, do not spend time uh, responding and living on the basis of our sin nature, but that we focus on our walk with Him. But when we do sin, the first thing that we should do, keep short accounts, confess sin to the Lord, which just means to admit or acknowledge our sin to Him. Instantly, we're restored to fellowship. Two terms are used that are somewhat synonymous. One is being filled by the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, and the other is walking by the Holy Spirit in Galatians 5.16. We are commanded to do both, to be filled and to walk by the Spirit. When we're walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit will fill us with His Word as we study it or remind us of what we have learned and what we need to apply. So that is the key to the spiritual life. Then we have the next three skills, which I pointed out, work together. They're foundational to spiritual growth. The first is what I call the faith rest drill. We claim God's promises. We apply God's word because he says, said to, and we relax. In 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 tells us that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, that is, the essence of God, His glory and virtue, He has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that by them we may grow. That's the faith rest drill, learning the Word of God. That relates to The third of these, doctrinal orientation, but first we have to learn about grace. That's what salvation is. the God's goodness to us, even though we were obnoxious to Him, even though we were spiritually alienated from Him because of sin, uh, nevertheless, He gave His Son to die on the cross. This is His love that is behind His gifting of His Son. John three sixteen God loved the world in this way that He gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have to start there to understand the concept of love, also the companion verse is romans five eight but God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, we're spiritually dead we're it, uh, walking in darkness, walking in rebellion to God, yet God loved us and gave His Son for us. So we have to understand grace because we deal with sinners. We deal with Christians who are sinners. We deal with non-Christians who are sinners. We deal with spouses who are sinners. You may not believe that, but you'll wake up. We deal with children who are sinners. We deal with parents who are sinners. Everybody around us is a sinner. We deal with them, and we have to learn to deal with them the same way God deals with us in grace. The fact that at any point from the time we were born on that we committed some infraction against God and God did not immediately uh, incinerate us is an example of His long-suffering and His love for us. So we have to... Think in terms of grace, not just get impatient and angry with people and frustrated all the time and all these other things that you and I know go along with our sin. We have to learn to love others as Christ loved us. That's the great commandment in John 13, 24 and 25 when he said to his disciples that you are to love one another as I have loved you. Well, that's going to be a more advanced skill, but it's grounded here. If you don't understand grace, you'll never understand love. You have to understand grace first. That's why it's a basic skill. And then doctrinal orientation, which is foundational to love also. We have to understand what God's Word says and how it, what it tells us to do and not to do. And then we looked at what I call personal sense of our eternal destiny, which is where Just like in your life, in my life, as we were growing up as children, we wanted immediate gratification for everything. But one day we began to recognize that we ought to postpone certain things because we had some things we wanted to do in life. We wanted to have a college degree maybe, we wanted to go into a profession, we wanted to be able to have a car, maybe a nice car, but at first you just wanted to have a car. And so in order to do those things, you had to decide that you weren't going to do some other things. That's what personal sense of our eternal destiny is. We learn to think in terms of God's long-term plan for our lives. And we begin to change our priorities today in order to realize those long-term goals in our spiritual life. Now, we have passed from spiritual childhood and spiritual adolescence to the mature skills. These three relate together. We'll talk about these. Our personal love for God, our, and I'm changing the terminology on this. I've never been satisfied with some of the terms like uh, conditional love or impersonal love. It's it's both. It's unconditional in the sense that people don't have to live up to a certain standard before we love show love to them. They don't have to become lovable in order for us to show love to them. It's impersonal in the sense that we don't have to have a personal relationship with them. The guy who just cut us off on the freeway we don't know and hope we'll never see again. The checkout lady who's making mistakes at the grocery store. There's all kinds of people we run into every day, and we should treat them with love and kindness and generosity. Be gracious to them, and we don't know even know their name, but that is the kind of love that God showed to us. And then the third focuses on Christ. We are to be occupied or focused on Christ, and then finally we'll talk about uh, sharing the happiness of God. So that's that's the overview here. Today we're going to be focusing on some of the aspects of these, these top three, our personal love for God, our Christian love for others, and our occupation with Christ. So we're talking about our personal love for God. Conclusion that we have reached so far is that every Christian builds on the foundation of their salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is the promised and prophesied Messiah, who, like the Passover lamb, died as a sacrifice to take away the sin of the world. That's where it starts. Believing Jesus is our Savior and He paid the penalty for our sins is the start of our spiritual life. When we trust in Christ, uh, believe that He died on the cross for our sins, then instantly we are regenerated. We're born again. We have new life in Christ that will never be taken from us. So then we have to build on it. This is what 1 Corinthians 3 taught. We build with either moral works. Any unbeliever can have a measure of morality. So morality is anything. The sin nature can produce morality. So we have to we we build our lives and it's either built with moral works done by our own efforts or it's done through uh, works that have eternal value produced by God, the Holy Spirit walking with Him. And so there's always a recognition. There are two kinds of believers, uh, those re- with rewards and those without rewards. That's our personal sense of destiny. Which one do you want to be, a believer with rewards or a believer without rewards? But all are saved. That's why John warns in John 4, don't be, that we should not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. So, from here we go, we looked last time also at suffering, and we learned that we need to, we will go through suffering in this life. We all suffer. I'm going to summarize it basically. We suffer for two basic, two basic reasons. Number one, we suffer because we committed certain sins or we did certain things and we reap the consequences. Or we live with somebody who made certain bad decisions, certain sinful decisions, and because we live with them or are associated with them in business or in a nation, then we suffer the consequences of others' sinful behavior. But God uses that in many ways. He uses that suffering to teach us to trust in Him, and to walk faithfully with Him. He uses that to mature us. He uses that suffering to uh, give us an opportunity to witness to others and to help them understand. He gives us suffering so that we can learn of His comfort for us, so that we can comfort others. Uh, It is also a witness to the angels in heaven, so it is a testimony in the angelic revolt. And it has, uh, God accomplishes multiple things through the suffering that comes into our lives if we trust, trust in Him. So this is going to bring us then to our, our next, next important topic. Just a minute. I need to select this correct slide here. I don't know why that, this disappeared. Okay, so here's this soul fortress metaphor that I've been using. Uh, often, a time and again in the Old Testament, it speaks of the fact that God is our fortress. He's our high tower. He is our shield. He surrounds us with His protection. But how do we avail ourselves of that? Well, as that's the soul fortress. So we confess sin, which puts us inside the soul fortress, and the way to stay in the soul fortress is through these various skills. We immediately, by being in the, for, uh, the soul fortress, we are filled by the Spirit, and as we continue to walk by the Spirit, then we exercise the faith rest drill, we exercise grace orientation, we exercise doctrinal orientation, and then we go to our personal sense of eternal destiny, which is what we've covered. And then today we look at something did not move, our personal love for God. So what is that? First of all, as the believer learns about God in doctrinal orientation and in grace orientation, we learn of all that God has freely given us. And as we learn about that, our appreciation... For him increases along with a desire to obey God and to serve him. Now I want you to think about the analogy of you as a newborn baby. As you begin to grow, uh, you recognize that you need the physical warmth of your parents. You enjoy that, and so at times you will cry and all you need is to be held. And sometimes you cry because you're hungry and somebody feeds you. And, as you go and you learn how to walk and fall, and somebody catches you, you learn more about your parents and you appreciate their care for you. so you 're beginning to learn to love, but as a child learns to love you 're developing a capacity for love. it takes time, and it matures as your relationship matures you hit you hit adolescence. And maybe you hit a few rocky spots because you aren't so sure that your parents really care for you or you, they get in your life too much. But eventually you realize they're smarter than you and that they love you more than you ever thought. And so then you grow past that into maturity. That's very similar in, this, in the spiritual life. As we grow physically, we know that we are to learn to obey our parents, when we disobey our parents, they don't stop loving us. But if they are godly parents, they will discipline us so that we will learn discipline and we will learn to be obedient. And when we look at the scriptures, we see that the love for God is measured by obedience. It is not measured by emotion. That doesn't mean you aren't have, you don't have an emotion accompany your love for god but love in the bible the love god has for us is not an emotional love in john 3:16 romans 5:8 emotions are uh, they they change they're mutable they they one day they're up one day they're down in fact somebody was asking me about this in my history of doctrine course on monday night and because we got into this whole issue of, of, uh, the passibility or impassibility of God. And I sit, pointed out that, that God is immutable. Emotions change. So by definition, God cannot be emotional or have emotion. Uh, it is not an emotional concept. Although there are metaphors and there are figures of speech that relate God to us in a emotional sense. Because we understand it. That's the purpose of these figures of speech. But when you dig down, and if you're a new believer, is this something that you will struggle with for a while, uh, because we live in a culture that's all about emotion. So we project that onto God. But historically, in Christianity, up until you had uh, really bore the fruits of the shift in self-centeredness in the 19th century, it was standard to understand that God did not have emotion. He was impassable. That doesn't mean that God doesn't care. That's how we got into it in the History of Doctrine course. It's because we started reading these various creeds and statements made by theologians throughout church history. And the students were, well, what does this word impassible mean? And so I got off onto it a little bit to describe it and They've never heard this before. The fact that you've never heard this before is a sign of a failure of churches and seminaries and uh, your various teachers to be aware of something that is central. It's in almost every early creed for the first uh, ten centuries. And it was well argued. It was thought through. It wasn't just something, oh, this sounds good. Let's throw it out there. They understood what it meant, and they argued for it and established it by way of the Scripture. So when it says, God loved us, and for God so loved the world, that's not something emotional. That is a mental attitude. Love in the Bible is a mental attitude focusing on that which is best according to God's standards, for the object of love. And to even begin to th- talk about love, we have to start with what the Scripture says. We start with passages like John 3.16 and Romans 5.8 and build on that. You see, we are all products of a very paganized Western worldview that go- can really be traced back to the roots of modernism that occurred in the Enlightenment. I've mentioned this several times recently, the Enlightenment really kicks off, if you study the history of ideas, with a Jesuit uh, mathematician by by the name of René Descartes. And Descartes was trying to figure out, how do we know truth? That's the basic epistemological question in history. How do we know what's true? How do we know what's right and wrong? Where do we get our knowledge? How do we know anything with certainty? And so his approach to this was to doubt everything. How do I know you exist? How do I know these chairs are blue and not green? How do I know that that I'm really alive? Maybe there's this cosmic demon who's just giving me all of these uh, hallucinations and they don't really exist. You don't exist at all. Those chairs don't exist. I, I, I'm not even sure I exist. But then when Descartes got to that question, do I exist? Can I be fooled into thinking I exist and I really don't exist? And he understood the contradiction of that. And so he came to his conclusion that because I am thinking, because I have the self-consciousness and mentality that I can think, I know that to be true. I must exist. That was his famous statement. I think, therefore, I am. But that was a cosmic shift in the way knowledge was approached. Since the time of Christ, because of the influence of the Bible, people who were biblical in a Judeo-Christian culture understood that God was omniscient. God knows all the knowable. God knows everything there is to know. He knows what would happen, what could happen, what should have happened, and what actually will happen. God never increases in knowledge. God never loses knowledge. His knowledge is like ours, but it's different. The term that's used is it's analogical. We can't know God's knowledge as it is, but we can know parts of it or aspects of it. And so it was understood that if God is eternal then God knows all the knowable, and you could describe this as as just a a huge circle. In actuality, it would be an an infinite thing, but you can't draw an infinite object because infinity, I mean, something that is drawn is finite, and so it breaks down at that point. But our knowledge is derivative of God. We can know truth because God has established truth and God guarantees truth. And so throughout 1,600 years of Christianity and before that in Old Testament uh, Judaism, they understood that human knowledge was a derivative of God's knowledge and we can know because we're created in the image and likeness of God and therefore we go to God for absolute truth and absolute knowledge. The after Descartes, how do you know? It's because of my perception, either through my reason or through my experience. But knowledge is now centered in me, not in God. Once you make that shift from a God-centered worldview to a man-centered worldview... Then one of the consequences of that is defining things like love shifts from being something you learn from God, starting with God, to now it is defined in terms of my experience. Pick up Webster's dictionary, the Oxford English dictionary, uh, Collins dictionary. They all say that emotion is a love, excuse me, love is emotion. Why do they say that? because their starting point is with man and human experience. But we must start with the Scriptures. The Scripture defines what love is. And love, for it to be genuine love, must be grounded in an eternal ethic, an eternal morality, that can only be found in God because He is both righteous and just. And so when we start to talk about love, we have to understand it from God's perspective not from our limited, finite perspective. And so God tells us, how do you know if you, if you love me? No, nowhere in Scriptures we'll see do, do we know God because of an emotion, because of a feeling. And you hear people sing vacuous, trite little Jesus choruses, and they, oh, I love Jesus so much, and they feel, oh, I just feel all this. And they don't know anything about Jesus. They're never taught the Bible. You can't love somebody you don't know or you don't understand, and so they 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 just then they create a, their own emotional idol of who they think Jesus is, and then everything has to conform to their idol idol of Jesus rather than the Word of God. That's a very sophisticated emotional idolatry which permeates our culture and too much and it permeates too much. Evangelicalism. When we come to understand God's love for us, then our love for God, as it grows and matures, it motivates the believer to press on to spiritual maturity. It's just like as you come and grow in your love for your parents, you want to please your parents, and you want to do that because you respect them and you honor them. And so the more you come to know them as you reach adulthood, the more you want to honor them because of what they have done for you. And so it's a response. As we go through this, we learn God's basic command. So the way in which we look at any teaching of Scripture is to start with the first time it's really mentioned in Scripture. Let me give you a pop quiz. Where is the first time that we have any sort of command or reference to loving God? It's not in Genesis. It's not in Exodus. It's not in Leviticus. It's not in Numbers. It's in Deuteronomy. That's the first time we have any revelation about our love for God. Now we understand that the context of Deuteronomy is a review and reiteration of the law that God gave to uh, to Moses for the Jewish people it was their constitution that they received from God on Mount Sinai and as they are have gone through 40 years of discipline in the wilderness as they are as the next generation is about to enter into the promised land Moses is about to be taken to heaven and his parting words to them is a reminder of the obligations of the covenant that God made with Israel. We refer to it as the Mosaic covenant, the Sinai covenant, or the law. And so that's what, what we have in Deuteronomy. So the first time we have love mentioned is in Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's mentioned again in Deuteronomy 11.1, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep His charge, His statutes, His judgments, and His commandments uh, always. And you go on into Joshua, in Joshua 23.10 and 11, as Joshua is giving them his parting words, he reminds them that they still have battles to fight and victories to win. And he says, if they are obedient to God, that's the contest, context, one man of you shall chase a thousand. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you as he promised. Now what does he say next? Therefore, take careful heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. In other words, if you depart from your love for God and you put your love on the various idols that are in the pagan culture of the Canaanites, then you will not be putting to flight uh, the thousands and the ten thousands. You won't have victories. That's the context. In John 14.23, Jesus says... Basically, the same thing about loving God, you keep his commandments. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Actually, the word translated home is abide, which is a technical term used by Jesus, uh, and it's recorded in the Gospel of John, which has to do with Fellowship. It has. It doesn't have to do with getting saved. It has to do with our fellowship with God after we're saved. So this is talking about that personal relationship that develops as we learn to keep God's word and to love God. John fourteen twenty four. Jesus goes on to say, "He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me." So you look at both Old Testament passages and New Testament passages, and again and again they say, if you love God, if we love Jesus, we keep His commandments. So if you look at your life, you say, how do I know if I love God? I can say it all day long. I can sing about it. But what is the metric that God gave Israel? What's the metric that Jesus gave the church? If you love me, you do what I say. Maybe your parents said that too. If you love me, you keep his commandments. Now, that's not legalism. Because in the New Testament, we're told that that we are to walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit will produce this in us as we walk by the Spirit, which includes learning God's Word and internalizing it. So all these things will fit together. So as we come to those upper areas of spiritual skills, I've talked about the one on the left there, as I'm renaming it, to Christian love for others. Because Jesus talks about this new command that he gives his disciples, that you are to love one another as I have loved you, and all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Then we have to ask the question, well, what is this love? I, I don't feel so good about a lot of people I know. So how do, how do I... I can't make myself love them. I don't even like them. And so this is something that has to be developed by the Holy Spirit. We go to Galatians 5.16, which gives us that basic command. It's the second spiritual skill. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion... The lust of the flesh, and then the next two verses talk about this war that goes on between the flesh, which is our sin nature, and the Holy Spirit, and that is something that is distinctive about Church Age believers. Since the day of Pentecost, forty days or fifty days after the crucifixion, since the day of Pentecost, then uh, we have the Church born on the day of Pentecost in AD 33. So from then to now, we're in this new era where the Holy Spirit indwells every believer and it is our responsibility to live by walking by the Holy Spirit. So two verses describe this conflict and then the next couple of verses say give us examples of what the work or the produce of the sin nature is. And so it includes... Uh, dissensions, and anger, and factions, and adultery, and murder, and lies, and all of these other things. So how do you know if you've learned to walk by the Spirit? The Spirit produces fruit, and that's what's given in 521 and 22. And it starts with what? Love. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and on. So when we are growing God, the Holy Spirit, produces this kind of love in us. It's a fruit of the Spirit. You can't manufacture it. You can't counterfeit it. You can't make it up. It only comes as a result of spiritual growth and walking by the Spirit. So that is Christian love for one another. Up here, you have personal love for God. That's first in priority because it impacts these other two. As we learn to love God, we will learn to love one another. And we will also learn to be focused on Christ. So these next three spiritual skills are interdependent, just like the faith, rest, drill, doctrinal grace orientation and doctrinal orientation were interdependent. So these are interdependent. Jesus reiterated this in a conflict with the Pharisees. This is in Matthew 22, which is leading up to this the crucifixion in matthew uh, twenty and twenty one we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem on what we refer as Palm Sunday. He enters into Jerusalem and the next two days he is confronted and attacked by the various Jewish religious groups and so uh, Matthew tells us about this that when the Pharisees and uh, heard that he had Silence the Sadducees first the Sadducees went out and confronted him and then the Pharisees are going to confront him and so the Sadducees tried one tack and it didn't work then one of them a lawyer asked him a question now they want to try to trap him they said teacher what is the great commandment in the law now the reason they want to trap him is because according to the pharisaical interpretation of the law they 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 inconsistently tried to argue that all the commandments were of equal weight, but they didn't really practice that. And so Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this summarizes the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are basically the summary of all of the ordinances and statutes that flow out of it in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law is analogous to our Constitution. The Ten Commandments are analogous to the preamble to our Constitution. They simply summarize the fundamental principles that undergird the remaining 603 commandments in the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was not given to any other people other than Israel. All of those commandments related to Israel's law. Well, what about murder? Isn't that true for everybody? Yes, that had always been wrong. Adultery had always been wrong. False witness had always been wrong. Exodus 20 is not making it wrong. It's always been wrong. Murder had been wrong since Cain killed Abel. What we have here is the law, the, the civil law and the ritual law for Israel distinctively in their, in their nation. And Jesus summarized it. The first five commandments have to do with how you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Six through ten have to do with how you love your neighbor as yourself. And that then is worked out as you study through the remainder of, of the law. So this lawyer, it's the word namikas, from namas, meaning law in the Greek, and he's an expert in the Torah. So he's a Pharisee who has specialized in the Torah. The Torah refers to the Law of Moses. It's a, it's an ambiguous word in one sense because it can refer to the Ten Commandments, it can refer to the 613 Commandments, it can refer as simply instruction, referring to all of the Pentateuch, and so you have to look at the context. So this guy's a lawyer. He's a specialist. He knows the, the 613 commandments and all of the pharisaical traditions related to them. And so he's going to try to trap Jesus by asking this question. In Mark 12:28, we learn that he is also a scribe. He's referred to one of the scribes uh, came. And having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked, well, what's the first commandment of all? So they had broken this down. The scribes saw that there were 248 affirmative precepts. That means you shall do this, like you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they had 365 negative precepts. That was was, uh, what you should not do. And altogether, there's 613, and they would then say, well, there's only 613 letters in the whole of the Ten Commandments, so they do this thing with numbers. And Jesus, again in Mark, does the same thing. One first and best commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first commandment. And the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, those commandments are basically reiterated throughout the rest of the New Testament. So even though they were part of the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, they've been repeated in the New Testament, so they are incumbent upon all believers as well. In fact, Jesus ups it. He doesn't say, love your neighbor as yourself. What does he say? Love one another as I loved you. Wow. That, that puts it at a whole new new level, but that's the mandate for, for for the church age. So we'll just look at a couple of more things before we wrap up this morning, and then we'll come back and dig into this some more next time. Jesus is quoting from the from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy chapter six, and he says, "You shall love the Lord your God." This is the word agapao. There are several words in Greek for love. Agapao was a general word. It's really not used that much outside of the New Testament, but it is used to describe the love that God has for unbelievers. A second word, phileo, which has more to do with an intimate love and maybe has more of an emotional sense to it, uh, though when it is used of God, he only has that kind of love for an unbeliever. And we know that from from revelation chapter chapter three uh, verses eighteen to twenty one so he this is talking about Agapa, O oh love, and he says, "You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart that's the word cardia, which often refers to the center of our being, like the heart of a tree or the heart of a matter or the heart of palms it's the center of something so it in many ways is a synonym and many times it's a synonym for soul but Jesus uses soul here so so he's used piling these nouns up to emphasize something he says your heart then he calls it your soul with all your soul not two soul not double minded you have every you're giving everything your all in toward god with all your soul, with all your mind. Notice that, your mind. Jesus doesn't expect you to put your intellect in neutral as a Christian. In fact, if you want to really worship God, you have to engage your intellect and disengage your emotions. You have to understand God and understand what the Scripture says, and you have to think like God and not think like human beings and not emote. So we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And then it says with all our strength, which is sort of an interpretation of what, the, what is said in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the word that is translated strength isn't the word az, which is the word for strength. It's the word ma'od, which emphasizes, you know, it, it, usually it's translated very, like very much. And it just, it just vary. And it, it's, it's an idiom that, that means just with everything you've got, you're to love the Lord. He is to be your priority. He is to be your focal point. He is to govern all aspects of your life. It's to govern your work life, to govern your family life, to govern, govern your marriage, to govern, uh, how you think about every detail of life. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. We're to love the Lord our God like that. That is the key. That's the same thing that is stated by Mark in Mark twelve thirty, And we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So to understand the significance of that, we have to go back to what uh, Moses is saying in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. This is called the Shema. The Shema is from the first word in uh, verse uh, 4, hear. Shema is the Hebrew word for hearing or to listen. And in Hebrew, in the Bible, when God says listen, he doesn't mean just have your ears stimulated, your auditory nerves vibrated. He means listen and do it it's not just the idea of your accumulating academic knowledge. No, he says, this is what you're supposed to do. That's the idea. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our Elohim, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, that's how New King James translates it. The Jewish Tanakh, which is the uh, Jewish uh, Publication Society translation, which is I always think is interesting because this verse has always been used by Jews to argue for a strict or unitary monotheism but the Jewish publication society 1986 tanakh translates it the lord alone which fits the context they understood the context it's not talking about solitary monotheism it's talking about no idolatry no other god but the but the god of abraham isaac and jacob So that's how it should be translated, I believe. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord alone. And verse 5 flows from that. says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. So this is saying something about love. And this is the first quote that Jesus has. He says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the idea behind this statement, you shall love, indicates that this is a command. It's understood that way. That's the nuance in the Hebrew. With our heart, soul, and ma'od, all of our strength. So how do we do that? Preview of next week. Deuteronomy 6.6. 6. See, this is the context. The thought doesn't stop with the period at the end of verse 5. The thought continues. What is the first thing he says we should do to express this love for God? These words which I command you today shall be in your heart. That means you need to internalize and assimilate the Word of God into your thinking. It is to put it inside you. David says in Psalm 118 uh, Thy Word have I hid in my heart, that I, Psalm 119, rather and not David, just Psalm 119 says, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. That's powerful. We have to hide God's word in our heart. And so it goes on and says, You shall teach them diligently to your children. If you love God and you say you love Jesus, then you need to be teaching God's word to your children and to your grandchildren and maybe even great-grandchildren. And you shall talk about them when you sit... In your house, when you're sitting around the kitchen table, are you talking about scripture ever? Do you talk about the affairs of the day and then talk about what scripture says about how you should think about them and talk about that in front of your kids? I have some good friends that are Jewish and one of them is a lawyer and he has had three boys or four, I think, and he taught them well. He taught them, he would every Shabbat on Friday night, as they had Shabbat dinner, he would have questions. And sometimes he would give assignments for the sons to work on during the day. He said, you're going to take the Palestinian side, you're going to take the Israeli side, and tomorrow you're going to debate who's right, who what what the issues are. He was teaching his sons to think from the time when they were in elementary school. And he would teach them the word. And um, and one of the sons I think two sons are rabbis. One son's a, a lawyer, and one son's an educator, and is the uh, uh, chief uh, administrator. I forget his exact title of uh, of um, one of the top Jewish school private schools here in Houston. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Diligent implies a plan. Do you have a plan in the curriculum for teaching your children the word of God? You need to have that. That's how we pass it on. The family is the, is the element for training the next generation. The reason we have a generation like we have today is because the parent, their parents failed as a generation. And it goes on to say, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. In other words, all the time. Now, you go to some houses, all they ever talk about is sports. You go to some other houses, all they talk about maybe is the movies and entertainment and the theater. You go to other houses, maybe they're talking about other things, but the the house of the Jew, the house of the Christian should be a house where the majority of the conversation is related to understanding the Word of God and applying it. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. This is talking about the phylacteries and they shall be as frontlets for your eyes. So next time, we're going to come back and go further into this. What does the Old Testament teach? Because that's the background for understanding what the New Testament says about how we are to love God. And one of the ways we handle the problems and situations in life is that we love God. How do we love God? Well, what we just read is you love God by internalizing the Word of God. That goes back to what I taught on doctrinal orientation. That's how you learn to love God, and when you're internalizing the Word, you are developing wisdom and skill at living. So that's the focal point. Personal love for God enables you to build a life that is going to glorify God, and it will minimize it. It will minimize traumas in your life that are the result of your own bad decisions and sinful decisions. And furthermore, when bad things happen that you can't avoid because we live in a fallen world, then it's going to give us the tools to handle it mentally so that it doesn't crush us. And we can trust God, and we can experience God's peace and God's joy even in the midst of horrific situations. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded that we are to love you with every ounce of our being. With our, all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, everything, you are to be our, our priority. You're to be our passion that we know you and that we build a close, intimate walk with you. And that affects every single area of our life. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never really, truly understood the gospel or anyone listening online, never understood the gospel that God's offer of salvation is free. All we do is trust Christ as Savior. It's not by any works on our part. Jesus paid it all on the cross. He died for our sins. Uh, When He was on the cross, you poured out on Him, you imputed to Him all the sins of the world so that, as Scripture says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, in order that the right your righteousness, the righteousness of God, would be found in us. Not that you made us righteous, but you declared us, because of Christ's righteousness, to be righteous in your sight. And so by simply trusting in Christ, we have everlasting life. So, Father, we pray that you would make that clear to the listeners here today and that there would be a realization that this free gift is salvation that's nothing we do to, can do to earn it or deserve it. And so father we pray that you would also challenge us with what we've studied today that we are to learn to love you with every ounce of our being and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.